ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we will be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. I said earlier that the disciples asked Jesus a question of greatness. Who is the greatest? That's how the passage starts. I think I know how, was it Muhammad Ali would answer that? Wasn't he the, the greatest of all time? You know, the hi- history is really full of people who were great in many different ways. And I think we need to ask ourselves, like, what does it really mean to be great? If you like superheroes, you've got superheroes with superpowers. You've got Superman, he can fly and strong. I think he shoots lasers out of his eyes. It's pretty great. Spider-Man can swing around on webs. That's pretty great. Moms can raise children. I'd say that's pretty great. It's a superpower right there. You know, you've got people with great artistic ability. People like Van Gogh, Monet. You've got people with great political power, influence, some of whom do great things for the world or for their country. What does it mean to be great? Jesus uses, in this passage, a child to teach his disciples what greatness truly is in his kingdom. And throughout this passage, this theme of a little one or a little child comes up again and again. In verse 2, he instructs his disciples they need to become like little children. In verse 5, he tells them they should welcome a little child in his name. In verse 6, he warns them against causing a little one to stumble. And then in verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So this is the theme that runs throughout this whole passage. Jesus, probably right there with a child in their midst, saying, look guys, look at this little one. This is what you need to be like. So let's look at exactly what he's talking about when he says we must be like a child or we must become like children. And this statement that they need to become like a child is in response to a question. A question that on one hand is kind of innocent, on another hand is kind of arrogant. And his disciples say to him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then? Now, usually when somebody says something like that, it means based on what we're talking about or what's going on. We don't know exactly what was going on around this time. We know where Matthew put this. And so we need to look at why, what Matthew might be linking this with. In the beginning of chapter 17, we have the transfiguration. Jesus, the Son of God, goes up on a mountain with three of his apostles And he's transfigured before them. His deity shines through. His glory shines through. They see him for who he truly is. Lord God eternal. It's magnificent. They also see that Moses and Elijah appear with him. A little later in that chapter, Jesus again predicts for the second time his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And so I wonder if that's what they're talking about. Okay, Jesus, you're obviously great. Some of them saw Moses and Elijah. Maybe they were thinking, well, they're pretty great. Maybe they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you're saying you're going to die. So 
what's going to happen after that? Like, who's in charge? Maybe those are some of the thoughts that are going on in their minds. It's possible that this was an innocent question. Jesus, we want to do the best we can for you. We want to live up to what you want for us. How do we do that? What does it mean to be great in your kingdom? It's also possible that there's kind of a sinful posturing going on here. Jesus, can you pick one of us? Can you just tell us like which one of the 12 is better than the rest? Who's the greatest? I think underneath all of this is a basic assumption. An assumption that the goal is greatness. That there's a scorecard, a checklist. And if I could just do this and then do this, and well, maybe that one's too hard, but I'll do this one. And if I could do more than that guy over there, I'm going to be pretty awesome. And Jesus is going to look at me and say, I'm great. There's a false assumption that greatness is the goal. And so Jesus, in verses 2 through 4, calls a child. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, they're looking at greatness in the world's eyes and they're trying to say, Jesus, now answer this question on these terms. And Jesus says, I reject your terms completely. (laughs) Let's try new terms. And he brings a child and he says, you need to be like this child. And he starts by saying, unless you change. And that's where I think that there's something a bit more sinful about their question. I don't think it's just honest questioning. I think he's identifying there's something wrong with their question. And he's saying, guys, you need to change. Fundamentally, the way you're thinking and what's going on in your heart, you need to change and you need to become like little children. Now, I think we need to be careful here. It's always important to let Scripture define what Scripture is saying. We take our modern mindset and we think, oh, becoming like a child. We need to be innocent and we need to be pure. Absolutely, we can talk about a lot of other scripture passages where we need to be innocent and we need to be pure. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. In verse 4, he talks about taking the lowly position of a child. And we need to enter into their culture, their mindset. You had kind of fathers and business owners and landowners. You had slaves as kind of the secondary in society, lower, and children were actually considered less important than the slaves until they came of age. They were not considered important whatsoever. Our culture is very, very different in that sense. We honor children, we raise them up, we want the best, we want the best best education, we don't always do well at all those things, but there's a general tendency of kids should get the best. It wasn't really that way in their culture. Children weren't really important until they came of age. So what Jesus is talking about when he says you need to become like a child, he's saying you need to be willing to be the least important among us in order to be considered great. The least important. 
take the lowly position of this child. I love that word take. He's not saying be willing to suffer. Again, we can talk about that elsewhere. There are places in scripture we have to suffer. That's true. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not, hey, sometimes you're going to be treated like a lowly servant and like a child. You just need to endure it. He's saying you need to seek this. You need to seek to be unimportant, less than or like a child. Choose to take the low position. Jesus says this is what qualifies for greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, we need to be careful here. He's not telling them to write a new scorecard with new Christian gospel things on the scorecard and to try to take a new score to try to be good for Jesus. It's so easy to slip into that. I used to try to be popular in the world and powerful and rich and famous or whatever it was. Now I'm going to try to be great for Jesus. Jesus is saying, throw the scorecard away. Be like the child. Followers of Jesus Christ are to be like children. And I want you to remember that because as we move through this passage, we need to hold on to that idea. When he says become like a little child now, he's not actually any longer talking about the child. He's talking about followers of Jesus Christ. Throughout the rest of this passage, when he says be like little children, he is referring to his disciples the way they should be. In fact, he's going to say that in a couple more verses. He'll clarify, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and he clarifies, those who believe in me. Because I see so many people misinterpret this passage just saying, oh, we need to be careful. We need to reach out to the children. We need to love the children. We need to be gracious to the children. Absolutely. Please don't go home and say, pastor said we don't have to care about children. (laughs) Not saying that. Again, we can go to so many other places. We can talk about caring for children, caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed. Certainly there are applications in other passages. That's not Jesus' point here. Jesus' point here is actually how disciples are to treat other disciples. How Christians are to treat other Christians. And he uses this child as a model of true humility. And friends, I want you to hear that phrase unless you change. Because we need to accept, still as modern day Christians, just as the disciples did back then, that this is not going to be natural for us. Living with this humble, Christ-centered, childlike mindset is not natural. We need to focus on and be intentional about living like children, trusting Jesus and following So here's the picture he's laid out, that followers of Christ are to become like children. We are to consider ourselves like children, lowly and humble. And now he moves on to how we are to treat one another. And he brings up an idea of stumbling blocks. Do you remember field day in school? I hated field day. My wife loved it. I hated it. Not athletic whatsoever. Never was. But imagine field day. Let's say it's first graders. And they're lined up for the 100-yard dash, right? They're out in a fresh mode field. There's butterflies flitting around. Birds are singing. 
They're lined up on the line. They're all happy and giggling, and the teacher's about to call out, go. And there's even parents there that are watching, and they're just cheering them on. Oh, so sweet. And they've got their phones out, taking pictures. It's beautiful. And the teacher says, go, and the kids, with reckless abandon, they just start running. And they're just so happy, and the joy is pouring off their face. And as tends to happen, one, one little girl tends to be a little bit faster, but the others don't mind. They're just so happy to be running, and she's out a little bit ahead. And there's a mom on the sideline that goes, uh-uh. You know, my child's in second. And she takes off across the field. She walks up to that little girl that's in first place and just cracks her in the knee. And that little girl, boom, and falls on her face, and she's got mud all over. And, she, and you should be horrified right now. I can't believe the pastor just said that. Right? Right, that's right. That's what happened to me. It's a personal experience. No. <laughs> now, I hope. My intention right there in that moment was to make you uncomfortable. Like, how could you say that? That's so horrific. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Hold on to that horror And that feeling of how could you say that? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. Let's start with verse 5. He says, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So again, this idea of welcoming little children, he's talking about welcoming followers of Christ. And he's saying, as you look at other followers of Christ, don't think, oh man, that guy wrote five books. Or that person is so holy, they give so much money to the church and they're so amazing and powerful. That's not how we are to look at other followers of Jesus Christ. We should look at the most humble among us and say, come on, welcome. Let's follow Christ together. It's a complete change of priorities. It's so easy for the world's standards to creep into our relationships with one another. It happens without us even realizing it. And so Christ says, don't be like them. And now he goes to the other side of the equation. So welcome little ones. And here's what he's going to say not to do. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus had a a real gift to be encouraging at times. Um, And he did. And there is an encouragement here. This is how much Jesus loves his little ones. He's not willing for anybody else to come along and trip them up. And he takes that so seriously. And it could be a fellow little ones. It could be another follower of Christ, that we look at somebody else and we say, I can't believe they have that or they're doing that. And we start gossiping about them and we start turning people against them or we say mean, hurtful, hateful things to them. It could also be somebody outside the church. I think what Jesus is talking about here could equally apply to the world. And Jesus is saying, don't cause one of my little ones to stumble. And the penalty, he says, is for a millstone to be hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I was a lifeguard. I've shared that numerous times with you. One of our tests for being a lifeguard is we had to hold a five-pound brick above our head out of the water and tread water for 60 seconds. At first, you're like, 60 seconds? Ah, No big deal. I almost drowned that day. (laughs) That was brutal. 
There was another time we had to tread water for five minutes. That was actually a piece of cake. Holding a five-pound brick over my head was really, really hard. A millstone, I looked this up, kind of a common millstone. These are the things that was a giant kind of wheel of stone, and it would be on an axle, and the axle would be attached to a pivot. It would go round and round in a trough, and they'd put the grain in the trough, and the millstone would, as it rolled over it, it would grind it away so that they could make flour and bread and those sorts of things. That would usually be pulled by a donkey. Common millstone, about 3,000 pounds. That's the size of like a mid-range car, if I'm not mistaken. So if we put this in today's terms, he's like, take a Camry and tie it around their neck and throw it into the ocean. Let's see how they can swim then. That's how serious Jesus is about causing a little one to stumble. Now, what does he mean by stumble? We've seen this word before. It's a stumbling block. It's... or rock. It's something sticking up that as you're walking along, you catch your foot on it. And it's not just a, oh, that was close. How embarrassing. This is a fall on your face, face in the dirt. I don't know if I'm getting back up sort of stumbling. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Do you remember back in chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says that it's on the rock of, G- of Peter's confession that the church will be built? says, on this rock I will build my church. And Jesus or Peter had said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There's a rock. And then just a few short verses later, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus because Jesus said he's going to suffer and die. And Jesus, Peter's like, no way, Lord. Don't say that. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You're a stumbling block. And it's Here that he's using that very similar word. Don't become a stumbling block for someone else. Now, we need to be careful here. This is not talking about causing offense, getting somebody upset, rubbing them the wrong way. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This is talking about doing something that causes someone to sin or to even doubt their faith faith. They're questioning their relationship with God because of something someone else has done. That's the kind of serious stumbling block that Jesus is talking about. And in verse 7, he continues, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. That word woe is not like a kind-hearted Aw, careful, world, heartbeats for you. This is watch out. It's a warning, caution, danger, or it's a pronouncing of judgment. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Attitudes and actions of hurting others are bigger than just that little relationship. It influences the whole world. When you take that mentality of I'm going to get what I want and do what I want, how I want, even if it hurts somebody else, and you multiply that over and over and over again, you've got our world and our culture all over the place. And Jesus says, woe to the world. Such things must come. 
but woe to the person through whom they come. Such things must come. That's hard. I would assume that most of us can picture somebody in our minds that did something so awful, either to hurt us or to hurt somebody else, or who sinned in such a powerful way that it caused people to doubt their faith. As I was thinking through this, I couldn't help but think, and maybe this is news to some of you, I couldn't help but think of Ravi Zacharias. My whole Christian life, I've read Ravi Zacharias. I've watched his tapes. I've watched what he says. Powerful, if you don't know who he is or who he was, he passed away recently. Powerful evangelist, powerful apologist, would go on high-ranking universities, colleges. He would argue with the most philosophically astute people in the world to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Powerful testimony, powerful teaching, powerful writings. Unfortunately, it since came out since he passed away. He was living a lie. He's been in sin, cheating on his wife for most of his adult life. He had mistresses around the world. These are not hearsay gossip things. It has been proven. You know, there's some people in some books, some authors that you know they're sinners. And it's hard when you hear these things. It's like, but what they said is still good. I got to tell you, for Ravi Zacharias, I pulled his books off the shelf and I threw them away. Because I do not believe that somebody who lived in such blatant sin for so long has anything to teach us anymore. I'll find my truth somewhere else. And I just wonder how many college kids, how many university kids came to faith through Ravi Zacharias. And his sin right now is causing them to stumble. And I don't know the state of Ravi's eternal soul, but I know the seriousness of his sin because Jesus says it right here, it would be better. And I wish that God would have removed him from ministry before that ever happened. And yet God says, Christ says, these things must come. And I wonder, even in that moment, as he's talking about people causing other people to stumble, if he's looking around the faces of his disciples, and Judas is right there. These things must come. It's hard. It's hard to know that followers of Christ will at times do things that are so horrific to cause others to stumble, to fall into sin, and even to doubt their faith. That's hard. But we need to understand that Jesus is still sovereign over those things. And his plans continue. And I believe that those were, that were saved through Ravi Zacharias' ministry were not actually saved through Ravi. They were saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will never fail them. And I pray that each one of us can hold on to those things when we go through times of seeing someone hurt us or even tempt us into sin to say, I am clinging to Jesus Christ. And we need to know, and I know this sounds harsh, but there's also comfort. Our God, our Savior is saying to us, I will take care of that person. I will judge them. I will hold them accountable. You keep trusting. You keep following Christ. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble.
But now Jesus takes it from those people out there, or maybe those people out there in the world that we want to cast dispersions on, and he makes it really personal. Look at verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. See, sometimes what causes us to stumble is not somebody else. Sometimes it's us. Our sin, our sinful nature, our habits. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. You know, we've heard these words before, if you remember. Back in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about how the kingdom of God grows within us. It starts with our hearts. It's not just a list of rules and actions we need to do. It has to start with our heart. And there he talks about dealing with lust, and he used the exact same picture. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. And we talk there, and I'll bring it up here. He's not actually saying literally cut off your hand and throw it away. Because the truth is that wouldn't do any good. He's using a typical Jewish way of teaching, which is hyperbole, exaggerating to make a a point. And the point is, sin is serious and must be taken seriously. We must deal with it seriously. And we must take those things that are tempting us to sin out of our lives. Remove them. If the computer's causing you to stumble, get it out. Get rid of the phone. Give it to somebody else. Be held accountable. Take sin seriously. And the fact that he links this with verse 6, causing one of these little ones to stumble, Jesus is saying that our sin or the sin of a fellow believer can cause others to stumble and we need to take it seriously. We were all deeply offended, I hope, by the image of a mom running across the field and, and, you know, clobbering somebody in the kneecap so that her child can win field day, right? Hopefully, if you weren't deeply offended by that, please contact me. We need to talk. <laughs> but how often are we the mom? How often are the one that we're the one hurting somebody else? How often are we the one tripping ourselves up and saying it's no big deal? It's just a little sin. And here's Jesus. And in a moment, he's going to change the picture to being a shepherd. Here's our great parent, our great shepherd, our great God. And he's saying, stop hurting each other that way. Be careful and take sin seriously. Greatness among followers of Christ is replaced with being welcoming to even the most lowly, the most humble, seemingly insignificant in the eyes of this world. But to know that we have something so far greater in common with them through Jesus Christ, we are all to be little ones of Christ. And we need to be very careful not to cause other little ones to stumble. Finally, he ends what we're going to look at today in verses 10 through 14. And he says, don't despise one of these little ones. 
obviously we shouldn't hate fellow Christians. I mean, that seems pretty clear. But look at how he explains this. Verse 10, see to it that you do not, or see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Oh boy. (laughs) What in the world is he talking about? You know, after much studying and, 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 and looking at this and reading scholars and people that know Greek and Hebrew and all of Scripture, there's a lot of different opinions on this. What are these angels? Now, first of all, before we get to that, don't miss that his key here is don't despise the little ones, okay? Whatever the angel thing means, don't despise the little ones. Hold on to that. But his reason here, this is backing up why we are not to do this, I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Some take this to say, see, the Bible teaches the concept of a guardian angel. Each Christian has an angel in heaven ministering on their behalf. That's awesome. That might be true. It's just not really taught in Scripture. What is taught in Scripture is that God sends his angels to work on behalf of his children. Yes. I don't think we each are assigned an angel. Just kind of a general heavenly beings, messengers. Hebrews chapter 114 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So as we take this concept of heavenly beings, even these angels that are ministering, serving on our behalf in the very presence of God, what Jesus is saying here is understand there's more going on than what you see. Don't despise someone else because God loves them so much that right now in his very presence, heavenly beings are working on their behalf. And if that is going on in the kingdom of heaven that we cannot see, why would we hurt someone here? Why would we despise them? And that word despise, it doesn't just mean hate. It means to look down on. To think of ourselves as better. It means to judge, maybe condemn, or even hate. But I want to be careful because I think sometimes we'd say, well, I don't hate so-and-so. I just can't stand them. That's still despising them. You're still judging and look, or I, I, I think it's okay what they're doing, but my way is better. That's still looking down on them. Jesus is saying, don't treat other little ones this way. And then he goes on in verses 12 to 13. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Such a famous passage. And and I want you to hear some layers here. Number one, your Father in heaven, your heavenly shepherd, he loves you this much. Individually, personally. You know, I hear people all the time saying, well, my problems are just too insignificant for the Lord. This passage says otherwise. God knows and is involved. The shepherd loves and cares for all of the sheep. And something interesting and amazing and beautiful happens if one of those sheep is struggling and wanders away from the flock. That sheep who is in trouble gets special attention. Now, 
be careful here. This is not to say that the shepherd cares about the other 99 any less. He's not looking at them saying, I don't have time for you. I need to forget you for a moment and go after this one. The reason he's able to leave the 99 is they're fine. He has led them where they need to go. They're in a safe pasture. There might even be other under shepherds watching over them. They're fine. I've heard this passage used to like ignore healthy Christians to go after the struggling. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying these people are good. I've already cared for them and they're okay right now. But this person right now is not okay. They need some extra attention. You don't despise the healthy to care for the sick. This one has wandered off and the shepherd has great joy in finding that one. Then we have verse 14. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Throughout scripture, God is shown to be and is described as our great shepherd, caring for us, leading us, picking us up, watching us, caring for us in so many different loving ways. And then as I said earlier in Matthew, we come to Jesus being born, Emmanuel, God with us. What a beautiful picture of how God loves even those who wander astray. But don't miss what Jesus is saying here. As he's saying your heavenly father loves these people in this way, remember that it was all under the context of how little ones are to treat other little ones. Jesus is saying this is how God loves us, but what he's also saying is this is how you are to love one another. We are to go after the hurting and the lost. And if we don't, what we're saying is we're despising them. You know, I hear people that come to our church and they're hurting. They don't feel like they can talk to others. That's despising a little one. I hear people say, I shared and then I just felt judged. That's despising. That's not what church is about. That's not the gospel in action. Jesus is saying here that his followers are to give up seeking to be great and instead are to focus on following him like little children. And when we do that, we don't look down on the other little children. We say, come on, let's go together. Let's keep following Christ together. Friends, maybe today you're the wanderer. And I want you to hear before I leave this passage, God loves you. And he's seeking you. He's chasing after you. Maybe today you're here and you know someone who's wandering. And you're praying for them earnestly. Hear that your good shepherd in heaven loves them. And he's pursuing them. And he's seeking them. But all of us, we need to hear Don't live in condemnation of other little ones. Seek them out and draw them back to Jesus Christ. We don't want to be like that mom who went out and tripped the child. We want to be like the shepherd that seeks and brings back the sheep. Jesus is going to continue in the rest of this chapter, and we'll look at it next week, with how followers of Christ should treat one another. And he's going to move on to dealing with sin in the church because that's part of this picture as well. But I want to leave you today with this call to be like a child. Don't 
buy into this world's picture of greatness. And understand that if we don't pause and allow Scripture to saturate our thinking, we will buy into that picture of greatness without even realizing it. And that's why I love that song, Be Thou My Vision. Change the way I think and and the way I evaluate things, Father. Jesus is turning the ideas of this world upside down. Instead of seeking greatness, we are to seek to be like a child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I believe we all need to admit that we get this wrong so often. We want to seek greatness. Even sometimes we would say for your glory, to spread the gospel, to help others to know about Jesus. If, if we could just have a, a bigger platform on which to stand and a greater voice, more people would hear. And if, Father, I believe one day we're going to stand before your throne and we're going to see people who are truly great in your eyes. People that the rest of the world would have looked over because they were humble and they were quiet And they didn't try to be significant or important. They just tried to follow you and to bring others along to do the same. And I pray, Father, that would be the characteristic of each one of us. That we would change and be like a child and follow Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.